0: Okay, while everybody's taking their seats, just a reminder, there will not be Bible class next Tuesday night, because uh, we will be off at pre-trib conference, and we usually take up the LCD projectors and sound equipment and things like that, so that will be next Tuesday night. No Bible class, and then um, a reminder that the following Sunday is the 10th, and that's when we're going to have our annual... Uh, thanksgiving and christmas uh, church luncheon following the morning uh, service Uh, we will have communion on that sunday and then we will have it uh, two is it two sundays two sundays later when we uh, celebrate christmas so that will be on that sunday morning we're not i've had a couple emails we will not be having a christmas eve communion service because christmas eve day is sunday so we'll be doing it that Uh, That morning. Also, a reminder on the uh, safety procedures that we're uh, implementing here, and that is that when I get up to start talking on Tuesday and Thursday night, the front door will be locked and the back door will also be locked, but there will be somebody back there to let you in if you're running uh, a couple of minutes late. Uh, Today, Bryce and I attended a uh, workshop with some just excellent speakers on church security that was held down at the Houston Police Officers Union building. And uh, we got a number of really great ideas that we will be uh, working into our security plan, our safety plan uh, for the church, as well as some other things, and uh, just to make sure that we can provide a safe and secure environment uh, for the congregation. Also, information about the trips, up on the, Up on the website, and you can go there to uh, find out about them. I think that's, that's about it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. they shall mount up with wings as eagles. they shall run and not grow weary, they shall walk and not faint. because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. As I uh, remind the congregation regularly, I hope that you are finding time to read your Bible, finding time, and that in your day, as the day has gone by, that you have enjoyed your fellowship with God as we walk by the Holy Spirit and applying his word in our life. After a few moments of silent prayer, I will then open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are very grateful for answered prayer this evening, now we're Grateful that you facilitated things so that Ray Mondragon could get his visa, and not only that, but to leave a day early, to, earlier than planned, to get down to Brazil. And even though he's a few days late, I think everything will work out. And Father, we're thankful that you'll that smooth out his path before him, and that he'll be able to return as well in an ex, expeditious manner, and be able to at least uh, participate a day or so at the conference next week. Pray for Jeff and Ray, as they minister down there, we pray for safety. We pray for people to be rested, for them to be focused. And, Father, we're thankful for men like them who are willing to dedicate their lives and their time to serve you in teaching your word. Father, we're thankful for Chafer Seminary for their ministry, both here and worldwide through the Internet. We pray that you would continue to provide students and provide the resources needed to expand our our influence father we're thankful that we can study your word and be refreshed by it encouraged by it and we pray that as we study your word that we might uh, be responsive to god the holy spirit as he teaches us and that we would implement these this kind of thinking into our own thinking and father last but not least we pray for those who have lost loved ones in this congregation who are grieving and we pray that you would comfort them and they would experience that comfort We pray for the Robinson family. We pray for the Seville family. uh, We pray also for the Burdett family and for Sally Davis's family. And we continue to ask you to comfort them. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Open your Bibles to Psalm 18. And we are going to see if we can complete the psalm tonight there's a lot here we've laid the groundwork we've covered much of the important things and so uh, rather than drilling down on some of these things there's a lot of summary and it's very important and we learned the lesson here as david comes to the close of this thanksgiving hymn he emphasizes how it is god who's the source of his blessing This is a great illustration of the fact that when we pray, there's two things that happen. One is we are to engage our volition in applying the Word of God. And on the other hand, we're trusting God to prosper and bless us in that endeavor. God is the one who gives success. We are the ones who fulfill our responsibility. God is the one who determines how that will work itself out in our lives. And so just as David trained, when the time came, he was prepared to go into battle against Goliath, that he told Saul that he had spent years protecting the sheep, that he had killed lions and bears, and so he was trained and ready to go into battle uh, with, with Goliath. That's the principle of faith rest. Faith rest is not just passive, it's actively trusting God, but we do what our responsibility is, and God does his. And we see a perfect example is this, as David talks about how God gave him victory over his enemies, but in the process, David is very actively engaged in fighting to destroy his enemies. So we see that in to one degree, we have our responsibility, but it is always under the umbrella and within the sphere of God's provision and protection. So he's the one ultimately who trains us and strengthens us, and he's the one who gives us the victory. We've seen in this psalm that it is an expression of David's joy and gratitude uh, to the Lord for all that he has done. He praises God for the way he has intervened miraculously, that even though in terms of what we see in terms of what David saw we see the natural things but yet he knows that there's something going on in the angelic sphere that is unseen by us and that as God uh, intervened in these affairs that God sent his angels that God himself is pictured as riding on the clouds riding um, among the chariots, coming to his aid. And so we don't see that. But nevertheless, that is very much part of how God God responds. So he expresses his fears and anxieties, as we've seen in other, other psalms, and God is the one who responds. As so we wrapped up last time, we saw that a very critical part of our response is our mental training and that mental training is learning and applying the word of god that's what teaches us how we are to think in the midst of the crisis because when the crisis comes we have to go on to uh, into autopilot as it were and autopilot is either going to be controlled by divine viewpoint and practicing the faith rest drill practicing applying the word or we're gonna go into autopilot and it's gonna be panic mode and it's going to uh, involve a lot of fear. And one example that I heard today, unfortunately a sad example, is one of our speakers today who has a, he's a retired police officer, he's been a pastor, and part of his ministry is to train churches in the area of protection and, and security. And he told a lot of interesting stories because he travels to these sites where violence has occurred in churches, where pastors have been killed, where members have been killed, where there have been various uh, different types of invasions of of churches. And one of the things that he pointed out in two cases, you'll remember that a couple of years ago there was a a man who went in and sat in Bible class, sat through the Bible class when everybody closed their eyes and bowed their heads. He knew he had a perfect opportunity to attack because everybody had their eyes closed. And he attacked the congregation and killed a number of people. And then recently we had the attack at Sutherland Springs uh, First First Baptist Church. And what he pointed out was that the people weren't informed. Now, we have to figure out how to inform you and to prepare you to think about these things. But it doesn't just apply to that kind of a situation. It applies to everything in life when we hit a change, when we hit anything that happens differently, any disappointments, uh, losses, heartaches, problems, whatever it is, is we have to be trained ahead of time and so that we know how to respond. And these churches were not composed of congregants who were trained. So when they had an active shooter situation, people cowed. The number one effective response is to charge the guy, to attack him. You're gonna die anyway, might as well die, die giving your life to save the rest of the congregation. I mean, that's a hard truth, but in the cases where people have killed, active shooters have been shut down, that's what happened in both of these cases, you had mass loss of life, and it's because the people just didn't know what to do. They just fell apart, and they cowed, and they cried, and nobody attacked shooters who had multiple um, magazine changes. That gives you time when that shooters dropping a magazine and he's got to change that magazine that's two or three seconds when you can attack him nobody did and so there was much greater loss of life now that's a tough illustration but the reality is we do that all the time in in day-to-day affairs where we haven't trained ourselves to think and react biblically to difficult circumstances and so what happens is We we fail. We go into default mode with the sin nature and we panic or we fear or we worry or we get upset and we don't automatically default to promises and to focusing on the word of God and God's procedures because we haven't memorized scripture. We haven't taken the time to train ourselves in those principles that are part of our uh, spiritual warfare and this is how david ended up the last section he talks about relates it to the word his strength came from the word now if you re- remember the context here is that david was anointed by god back in first samuel 16 in first samuel 17 he fought goliath and he is given all kinds of awards and acc- accolades by the people And this made Saul jealous. Saul's reaction, knowing that David had been anointed to succeed him as king, was to kill David. And so for the last five to ten years, Saul has been in hot pursuit of David. As David has been hiding out in the desert areas of uh, the Negev in southern, uh, southern Judea, he's gathered a number of people around him. They've been oppressed by the ty- tyranny of Saul, and they've left, and they've gone down to David for protection. And so his numbers have increased from just maybe a few dozen to over a thousand. And this is how God was training David to lead the nation. He's training him in terms of his own personal spiritual life and in terms of God's destiny for him as the future king of Israel. And he had to learn how to think and more than he had already. He had to learn how to apply the word of God in different areas and how to be the kind of leader that God wanted him to be. And that comes from the word of God. You can't be a true leader as a believer unless it's it's focused motivated and empowered by the word of God and the holy spirit so he has you, we read these verses like psalm 18:28 for you will light my lamp the lord my god will enlighten my darkness we all live in a dark world the only way we know truth and the only way we know what is really going on is if we have let the word of god shape our thinking. Most people, even most Christians, have imbibed too much spiritual darkness from the world around them, and they can't think objectively. They can't think on the basis of truth. And so they become slaves to their passions. They become slaves to their sin nature. They become slaves to the trends and whims of a pagan culture. And they can't live above the problems, they just react to the problems. God is the one who gives us light. Psalm 119 has two verses that talk about the light. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. That's talking about divine guidance. It comes from a way of thinking that is shaped by the word of God. Psalm 119, 130. The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple or the naive. You don't have to have a high IQ. In fact, that many times can be a hindrance. You have to be able to think biblically and just trust the Lord. Psalm 36, 9, "...for with you is the fountain of life in your light." That is, only on the basis of divine revelation can we understand light." And in the New Testament, we learn that Jesus is the light of the world. That's the foundation for all knowledge. Proverbs 6.23 says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase? That is the opposite of what our younger millennial culture has come to believe. They think a reproof is an ass- an attack and an assault, and that's a cause for taking offense. Don't hurt me. Don't offend me. Don't say something I disagree with. Don't tell me that the, what I think or what I believe is wrong. Uh, that's that that's uh, destructive. But what the Bible says is that if you are not coming to Bible class, if you're not reading your Bible and having your opinions. Just blown apart by the Word of God, then you're not growing and maturing as a believer. That the Word of God is alive and powerful, that the Word of God is breathed out by God and it's profitable for doctrine, for what? What's that next word? Reproof, for correction. See, when you grow up in a generation whose ideal is, I know I'm inherently right. I can't be corrected. If you correct me, you offend me. Then you immediately look at God and say, God, you offend me. Therefore, you can't be God. Because if you were God, you would uh, validate me. You would affirm all of my beliefs. And that's what's happening. This is a head-on collision between God who is speaking the truth and saying that you need to change, you need to let the word of God transform you, and a culture of babies who say, no, God, that's wrong. I'm right. It's the height of arrogance. And so David shows, I mean, Solomon shows here in Proverbs 6.23 that if you're a believer, reproof is going to be your way of life just get over yourself you are constantly going to be told to quit thinking so highly of yourself and to realign to the word of god so david then explains in the rest of the psalm this is where we have our major break our major division starting in verse 40 where he or 41 am i in the right place yes um Verse 31, excuse me, I was looking at 41. Verse 31, this is where a major shift takes place. And the rest of the psalm is a focus upon who God is, that his blessings come out of his character. If we don't understand who God is, we can't understand the blessings that God has for us because they are intertwined, interconnected We have to understand who He is to understand what His provisions are for us. And what we see in this last section is bookends. I've mentioned this before. Verse 31 introduces God as the rock, and then when we get down to the last and final praise section, from 46 to 50, the topical verse for that is verse 46, again emphasizing God as the rock. And what we have surrounding all of this is really a development of what that means what god our rock really means that and and we'll we'll look at passages that indicate god is not only our our rock but he was called the rock that was uh, just a metaphor that he's addressed as our rock our god so That sets him apart. So in verse 31, we we read this rhetorical question that uh, David asks for the purpose of focusing our attention on who this God is that that we worship. He is the rock. The question is, who is God? Who is Elohim? Generic word for God. Who is God? Is there any God out there or many gods out there? No, there's only one. Yahweh, the uppercase indicates the uh, proper name of God in the Old Testament that was written as four consonants Yahweh, Y H W H. And he says, For who is Elohim except Yahweh? And who is a rock except our God? So that puts the term rock in as another name or title. Uh, for Yahweh. And this is a term that should take us back to our introduction to the Psalm in Psalm 18.2. At the very beginning, we have David talking about God as a strength. Verse 1, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. And then in verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer my god my strength and if you remember and maybe you should write a note there if you have a new king james it says strength but it's not the word strength it's the word sur t-z-u-r sur which is the same word that we have in verse 31 uh, who is a rock it's a special type of rock so it's a different word for rock than the first word that is translated rock it is a a word that indicates something that is massive, as we'll see in just a minute. God, my strength, uh, my, should be translated, my God, my my rock or my boulder or my escarpment, in whom I will trust. My shield, see, we'll see that imagery of a shield repeated again in this, this last part. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and that's this word sur, which i just mentioned it refers to a large rock something like this this is at uh, Caesarea philippi a place that is also called banias because the arabs can't pronounce a p and it's really for the god the greek god pan they had built a the greeks had built a temple there to pan and this was where jesus talks about uh, has this little conversation with peter and says, and says, on this rock I will build my church. He's talking about himself, and uh, he says, against it the gates of hell. And this was the gates of hell. But you look at the background. There's a perfect picture of what a tour is. It is an enormous rocky escarpment. It's not just, you know, some little boulder out there or something that you might be able to pick up or, or maybe use a, uh, some kind of a. Uh, a lift or wedge to move in your garden this is something that is huge something enormous so this is this is what is pic- depicted here we have this term used for God in passages like uh, Deuteronomy 32, four. now Deuteronomy 32 uses the rock imagery many times so it's a good passage to read it's a prayer of Moses and Moses says, he is the tzur, he's the rock. His work is perfect. So so part of that which makes up his steadfastness, his immovability, is the fact that he is perfect. For all his ways are justice. So we see that part of what enables him to be stable as God and dependable and faithful is his unchanging Righteousness. So this this kind of a rock is a picture of that which doesn't change and that which doesn't diminish. And so then he's meant uh, Moses says he's a God of truth and without injustice. righteousness and uprightness. So what are the attributes of God in that verse that relate to rock? He's, he's perfect, he's complete. It's a word that also indicates his integrity. He's just, he's righteous. He's upright. He's true. All of those uh, attributes reflect this idea that is communicated in the image of being a rock. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, as we studied when we first began our study in 1 Samuel, has a hymn of thanks to God for giving her a son, Samuel. And in that hymn, she prays, no one is holy. That means set apart or unique when it comes to God. He's one of a kind. He's unique in all of his attributes. He's unique in his sovereignty. He's unique in his righteousness. He's unique in his justice. He's unique in his love. That that word holy means unique when it's applied to God and relates to all his attributes. There, no one is unique like the Lord, for there is none Beside you. That's the same thought that we have in Psalm 18 uh, 31. For there's none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Psalm 19 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. And I don't know what you have in your. The uh, New King James he gets it wrong. It's sur again, and it means the Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. We can cry out to him in prayer, Psalm one: To you I will cry, O Yahweh, my rock. Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. I'll be like a dead person. Psalm 62, two and 6 say the same thing, he only is my rock, my sure, and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. And then back to Deuteronomy 32, 31, Moses says, for their rock, it's almost as if this is a synonym for deity. Their God is not like our God. Their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves being judges. And then in verse 37, he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought.'" Refuge. So, what is your source of security and stability? It is God the rock. Now, the other aspect of this was the uniqueness of God, that He is God alone. There is no other uh, like Him who is a rock except our God. And this goes back to the uniqueness of God as stated in the Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word meaning to listen or to hear. And that's the first word. Often they will title a book like Genesis. The first word in Genesis 1-1 is in the beginning, Bereshit. So the book of Genesis in, in the Hebrew Bible is called Bereshit. So this verse is an important verse. So it's called the Shema. The first word is Shema, O Israel, which means hear, O Israel, Yahweh, Eloheinu, uh, Yahweh, our God. Yahweh Echad is the Hebrew word. Sometimes it means one, but it can also mean alone, and that's important. And this is an important verse because that's often a verse that that uh, that Jewish rabbis will emphasize. See, this means that that, that God is a solitary mon, uh, monotheistic God. He is a solitary God. There's not a triune personality. But see, the translation I have here isn't one I generated. That translation comes out of the Jewish Publication Society's Tanakh. The 1986 edition translates Ahad as alone, recognizing that the surrounding context focuses on a prohibition of polytheism, a prohibition of idolatry and so contextually what moses is saying here is not only is the lord our god but he's our only god so it has nothing to do with monotheism i find that fascinating someday i'll be able to have a conversation with uh, one of my jewish friends about that and then verse five you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength Now that leads us into the next verse, that it is God who arms me, David says, with strength. He's the one who prepares me. He's the one who's provided for me. He's the one who trains me. The word there for strength is the uh, word chayil, which... I put this up here because it has a range of meanings. It has to do with might or power, omnipotence, God's strength, his ability. It also can indicate virtuosity. It can indicate valor. It can indicate uh, someone who's wealthy, someone who's somebody of substance. So God arms me with all of this, David says. He gives me the resources I need to meet the enemies I face. That's the focal point there, that no matter what you're facing, you may not be facing a physical army or somebody threatening to destroy you and kill your family. You may be facing economic problems. You may still be facing problems from uh, Hurricane Harvey and being overwhelmed with that. You may be facing health issues, so many different things. But God is the one who gives you strength, who gives you the resources the power, the might, the, the financial resource, everything you need to face that battle. And then that next line is a rather interesting line. It says, and he makes my way perfect. Now, in the, in the Proverbs, we talk about trusting God and God makes our path straight. The word for path and way here is the same word in, in the Hebrew. And, but the word for my way, perfect, is the Hebrew word that sometimes it means perfect, sometimes it means complete or whole. There's one version that uh, translates this as God smooths out our path. And it, it has that idea of God makes our way complete. He's sufficient for us. That's the word that theologians used. God is enough. You don't need to look elsewhere to find sustenance in life. People today, uh, they they look, to, oh, I'm feeling bad. I'm having this problem, that problem. Now, sometimes you do need to see a doctor, but too often it's like, I need this pill, that pill, whatever it is to make me happy, joyous, or whatever. Whatever happened to walking by the Holy Spirit? What did all those Christians do from Jesus' time until the midpoint of the 20th century uh, God promised them a life of joy and happiness and stability, and they fought with depression, they fought with other things, but they learned by fighting it to apply the Word of God and live above those circumstances. Now what we do is we find some kind of quick fix to everything instead of using the Word of God to transform our thinking, and that transforms what's happening inside of our of our soul so here's another promise god sustains us he provides us with the strength to face whatever it is that's challenging us and he will uh, give us that which is sufficient for the task and so then what david goes on to do is talk about what is provided uh Provided by God. We have uh, a little later on, he's going to use the same terminology. Not only here in verse 32 does God arm us with strength, but he arms us with strength for the battle. It's the same word in both places for arming. He gives us strength for the battle. Uh, You've subdued me under those who rose up against me. And what he means by that is that God has sustained him even in the midst of the battle. So as we go through this particular section, what we see, first of all, what I just talked about from verse 32 is that God gives us the strength and the power to handle whatever obstacles are there. And then the second thing that we see, verse 33, is that God removes these obstacles as he makes our path straight. That's, uh, that's back in verse 32, rather. That's the second part of verse 32. So the two aspects that we see here, first of all, he gives us strength and power in the first line, and then he uh, makes our path straight. He com- gives us uh, a sufficient resource to face those, those problems. In verse 33, we see a third element introduced. He provides stability. Now, it's a picturesque image. If you've ever been out in the um, wilderness area or out in the country, and you 've observed deer and how they 're able to walk in places you can 't quite imagine or you 've seen mountain goats and they have this uh, tremendous ability to to walk in places you don 't think anybody can walk and to climb up craggy cliffs and find their way that 's the idea here. Uh, he makes my feet like the feet of deer, in other words there 's an imagery here of of uh, stability. So he may be comparing them to an Ibex, which is found, uh, we saw a herd of Ibex in a couple of different places in Israel, uh, down in the area um, uh, around uh, in Gedi. There's a herd there, and there's also a herd uh, up down, down further in, in the Negev. And so that's what it pictures here, is he makes a person stable or sure-footed in life, and sets him on high places and then the next thing we see is that god provides training this is in verse 34 he teaches my hand to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze so the first thing i want to point out here is that god trains him trains him to be a warrior It's important to be trained. Uh, I just can't help reflecting on what we heard today. And what I already alluded to is in these situations where there's an active shooter, uh, somebody who's really an active killer. I love this guy's uh, imagery. He said, how many of you guys hunt? I hunt. We're all active shooters. These guys are active killers. They're active murderers. We shouldn't call them active shooters. Uh, that reduces or changes the imagery so what we see here is there's training people need to train themselves to protect their home to protect their church to protect their families folks we live in a world that is a lot more dangerous than the one in which many of us grew up there are so many things that are going on around us and thankfully we don't know about a lot of them but every now and then when I talk to certain people who are knowledgeable, it's enough to really, to really scare us. We should be so thankful for the military personnel and the law enforcement personnel that surround us and protect us because there are some really evil, wicked people out there. And uh, every now and then now they want to come into the church and just kill people. And so we need to be trained. We need to know what to do. And and it's not hard. I'm not talking about, well, we're going to go down and go through SEAL training or Ranger training or anything like that. We need to be alert. That's the number one thing. We just need to have people who are watching, some designated uh, people in the church whose job it is just to keep a little extra attention on who comes in. Uh, we've had some people here, since all of us are, are here. We don't have any visitors tonight. We've had a couple of occasions in the last Uh, year where we have had a couple of men come in sit down go through bible class uh they were attentive they were uh, well-mannered but at the end of class they wanted a handout they wanted some money and uh, when i see these guys come in you can't see them always but i can and i'm nervous who's this guy you know and and are my deacons watching this guy and that's what we need to train the deacons to do. Somebody comes in, you don't know, and they seem out of place. There needs to be a man, a deacon, who sits behind him, who's watching him, who says, that's my guy, I'm on him. I don't know who he is. I'm glad he's here. I hope he learns a word. But I need to make sure that the sheep are protected and that if this guy has uh, evil intent, that I can be right here to tackle him. And, and take him down. We need to think that way, and that involves training and involves awareness. And this, of course, is a much broader context. And it's training for war. You don't send somebody off to war without a lot of training and a lot of discipline. And, sh- and if they're involved in firing weapons, whether it's uh, missiles or whether it's artillery or whether it's uh, small arms, they need to be familiar with that. And they need to use that in the military. And David uses this imagery here of a bow of bronze. Now, a bow is made out of metal. A bow is made out of wood. But it would take even more strength and power to bend a bow of bronze. And so that's what this is just hyperbole that he's using, that that God has trained him uh, to be efficient with his weapons and have the strength and the power to use his weapons effectively in combat. And we learned that God is really a God who at times is a God of war, because war is necessary because there's evil abroad and there needs to be protection. Psalm one, David says, "'Blessed be the Lord, my rock,' notice the similarity of of context, "'who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle.'" Proverbs 27.12 says, "'The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it.'" See, the the prudent is wise. He's going to predict danger. He's going to be aware that that there could be dangerous situations. And so he's going to take the appropriate measures to protect himself, whereas the naive person or the simple person just says, "Well, I'm just going to trust the Lord and just go blindly on," and the result is that they get in trouble. Uh, this is, the idea here is: is the prudent is going to lock his door, is going to get a home security system. The prudent is going to train and think about, "Well, what happens if the unthinkable occurs and somebody breaks into my house?" This is a part of leadership. I have been amazed over the years at at the lack of forethought given by church leaders forethought and fathers husbands parents you should have plans what happens if a fire breaks out what happens do your kids know or do you know where you would go for a fire drill what happens if somebody breaks in the house you don't go attack them you try to get out if you can You know, that's your number one defense is to get out and not be in harm's way. And number two, if you're trapped, then you try to hide. You don't try to confront the person. Same thing in any kind of an active shooter situation. So the prudent needs to train. And that's what these verses talk about. God trains us not only spiritually for the battle, but he trains us for the physical battles that may come our way. So David goes on to talk again about what God has provided. Not only did he fourth train us and provide training, but fifth, uh, <clears throat> fifth. Of, excuse me, I'm skipping ahead with my, um, with my, why well, not? He trains us uh, for battles and for war. Uh, Exodus, um, we need to recognize who God is. Let me see if I got this ahead of, No, I didn't. I left them out of the slide. Okay, before we get to verse 35, fifth point is that God is the God of battles and the God of war. God is not a pacifist. God's been involved in a spiritual war, a cosmic war, since eternity past. That doesn't mean God is a bloodthirsty God. It doesn't mean He's a God who enjoys war. He is a God who is a God who. Is the God of peace, but peace only comes at, at the price of protecting the innocent, protecting those who are just, and so sometimes it's necessary uh, to fight. Exodus fifteen, two and three uh, Moses says, "Yahweh is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him." Yahweh is a man of war. See, too often we juxtapose that, oh, Jesus is mild-mannered. No, the, Yahweh in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, is the angel who is <clears throat> a warrior. We have the picture of him coming to rescue Israel at the end of the tribulation in Basra. And when he comes out of Basra, his robes are drenched in blood from killing all of the people in the Antichrist's army so he is a man of war six point we see here god is the one who protected david throughout all of his problems and god will protect us in our our own battles psalm 1835 you have also given me the shield of your salvation your right hand has held me up Your gentleness, that's mercy, grace orientation. Your gentleness has made me great. This is the same God who is a man of war in Exodus chapter 15. He is the one who provides that shield that uh, is alluded to in 18.2. He is our uh, shield and the horn of our salvation. So we see an echo of that opening verse here in verse 35. Then in verse 36, it says, you enlarged my path under me. In other words, you took the obstacles away. You opened things up. You made it possible for me to go forward and encounter my enemies and have victory without obstacles where you enabled me to overcome them. Then seventh, we see that the result is that God gave David the victory. Now, this isn't a passive trusting God. Well, I'm just going to trust God and everything will be okay. Now, we do what we can do to a certain point. Sometimes we can't do everything we might want to do. There's a lot of factors. But David did what he could do, and then God gave him the victory. David trained and prepared, and he had a plan of action, and then God gave him the victory. And so David describes it this way. He says, I have pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn back again until they were destroyed. He neutralized the hostile force. He didn't seek peace too early. He took them out. There's a When it's time to be aggressive, it's time to be aggressive. And you don't hold back. You have to destroy the enemy. Otherwise, the enemy will return and destroy you. I've pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. I've wounded them so that they could not rise. They can't come back. Always like that. I'll clean it up a little bit, that opening line in Patton. You know, you don't want to die for your enemies. You want to make them, you don't want to die for your country. You want to make your enemies die for their country. That's the point. And that's exactly what David has said. I've wounded them so that they can't rise. They've fallen under my feet. I've subjugated them. And ultimately, who is the one who provides this? That's God. God gave him his his enemies so that he could destroy them. This is in the next verses. 1839, for you have armed me. With the strength for battle, that's that word azar again. We saw it back in 41. You've armed me to gird. It's a term for putting on your armor, putting on your, getting all prepared to go into battle and wrapping your, your belt uh, around your robe so that it doesn't get in the way. And so you're well prepared. You've armed me with strength for battle. You've subdued under me those who rose up against me. Then we come to verse 40, and again we see him continuing this battle against his enemies. You've given me the necks of my enemies. You've subdued them so that I destroyed those who hated me. They cried out. Now, why are they crying out here? This is uh, an interesting passage. They cried out uh, for help, but there was none to deliver them. And in the next line, it says, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. And the preposition that's used here when it comes to uh, to the Lord is the preposition al in Hebrew, which has a range of meanings. Most uh, people translate this as if it were another preposition that's similar, el, as if they're praying to God. But this trans- this particular preposition uh, could be a way of crying out against God. So if you translate that even against God, he's not answering them. They're condemning God. They're in rebellion against God. So God then enables David to beat them as fine as dust before the wind. We used to have an expression, they get blown to smithereens. They're just reduced to dust particles. That's the imagery there. Uh, I cast them out like dirt in the streets. Very picturesque, complete destruction of his enemies so they can't fight back. Then we get into the next section, verse 43. And here David is talking about how he has delivered them. Now, I think this section, when we get down to 43 and the following there's I think there's a messianic overtone here that when we get here, the events in David's life are foreshadowing the ultimate conquest of the nations by the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns at the end of the tribulation to set up his millennial kingdom. And so David says... You've delivered me from the strivings of the people. That is fighting the, na- the, the people around him. Am is a word that means just a people group. It's a, a parallel sometimes for goyim, for the Gentiles, as we see in this, this verse. You've made me the head of the nations. He's conquered these other tribes and nations, and he expanded Israel to a greater uh, territorial uh, control than, than ever before. So he's saying that he's praising God because he's given him victory over all these enemies and all the battles. He's expanded the territory of Israel and given him a position of control. Verse 44, as soon as they hear of me, they obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideout. So these verses speak of the conquest of the other nations which is a foreshadowing of the way Jesus will conquer the nations of the earth when he returns. This is how it's expressed in Psalm nine: You shall break them with a rod of iron. This is peaceful, gentle Jesus. He's going to come back and break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. He's going to blow them to smithereens. That's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. He will defeat the armies of the Antichrist and the nations. If you remember the first part of Psalm 2, the kings of the earth are uh, in a have conspired against God and his anointed one, and they are going to destroy God. But it is the anointed one, the Mashiach, who's going to come and break them like a rod of iron. And then we come to the... Closing section here of this psalm where David again breaks out in praise and he says, the Lord lives. We over again throughout the Old Testament, they serve a living God as opposed to a God of stone and a God of wood or a God of metal. It's a living God. So he exclaims, the Lord lives. Yahweh lives. Blessed, which is, a, it, you know, we don't bless God. When you say bless God, what that meant, it was an idiom for praise God. Uh, Praise be my rock. And so again that takes us back to all this imagery that we have seen related to God as our rock. He's our stability. He's He is um, uh, unchangeable. He is faithful. He will protect us and provide for us. He is our rock. And he says, Let the God of my salvation be exalted. And in verse 47, it is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. And that's an interesting word that we get into. We get to this word for uh, avenge, and it's, um thought I put it in there. I didn't. The word avenge is the Hebrew word uh, <clears throat> nechkamah, nechkamah. And it's a misunderstood word. We all remember the verse, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Human vengeance is vindictiveness. It's motivated by the sin nature. It is not justice. It is simply, I want to get back at somebody. They hurt me. I want to hurt them. It's not what it's talking about. This is a word that is used of God, and it refers to God's exercise of his justice. Because God is a righteous and just God, he must be true to himself. He must be true to his attributes of justice and righteousness, and so he must eventually bring punishment to all of the unrighteousness. Even if we don't see it, the unrighteous will be punished by God, and he is the one who will protect us either here or later. Time does not end in this finite life of ours it goes on god avenges me and subdues the people under me and then he goes on to say in verse 48 he is the one who delivers me from my enemies you also lift me up above those who rise against me you have delivered me from the violent man so again here he shifts from he delivers to you deliver it's much more personal as he praises god And then in the last two verses, we have our uh, concluding thanks. He says, therefore, in light of all that he said in these previous 48 verses, it's taken us about six lessons to go through. He says, therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, among the Gentiles. See, now he's not only, this is why I think this has this messianic overtone. David didn't rule over the Gentiles. There were a few that he conquered. But this really, I think, looks forward to the greater son of David, the the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to rule over all the nations, who will uh, rule over them. He says, therefore, I'll give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. And then the last verse, great deliverance he gives to his king. Now, this is interesting because this was written by David early on, between 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, when he heard that Saul had been killed, and so that ended that problem, and he would become king. It's included in, 1 Samuel, in 2 Samuel, but not when he wrote it, which is when we've studied it, but it's in 2 Samuel 22, at the end of his life, because it also, and there are a few changes in 2 Samuel 22 that are different from uh, psalm 18 because it, it's broadened more it's looking back over his whole life and all the victories that god uh, gave gave to david but it's in 2nd samuel 7 that god gives his con- contract his covenant to david that david's descendants will always sit on the throne of, of israel and that goes ultimately it's fulfilled in the person of the lord jesus christ and so this verse looks forward to that great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy that is loyalty to his covenant he gives shows mercy to his who his anointed now this goes beyond david he is faithful to his covenant of course to david but to the house of david in the person of the messiah the anointed one to david and his descendants forevermore so when it says God shows mercy to his anointed. That focuses on the house of David with its ultimate fulfillment in that descendant who will live forevermore, the Lord Jesus Christ and rule over Israel. So this is David's praise to God for preserving him, protecting him, training him in those desert years to be able to fight his enemies. And then God brings him to the throne of israel and we will start next time which won't be next week because i will be a pre-trib but we will start in two weeks with second samuel chapter one and pick up in david's life with where uh, we left off which was the battle uh, on mount gilboa where saul was killed and the devastating defeat at the hands of the Philistines for Israel. And 2 Samuel 1 begins with uh, David hearing the report of Saul's death. And that will be in two weeks. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. Help us to understand that this has great application for us. Our battles are different from David's, but they're just as real and just as significant. And you sustain us and provide for us in those battles You train us and teach us. That's why we come to Bible classes, to be trained mentally so that we can be sharp, so that we can be prepared, so that we can be ready, so that when those battles come, we're not going to cower, we're not going to fail, we're not going to fall. We're going to stand firm because we know what you will provide for us, how you've taught us, how you've trained us. We have the promises in our souls, and we trust in you to sustain us in those times. And, Father, we pray that you will challenge us with this to to get with the program, to be trained by you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.